Good morning. How's everybody? Good. My name is Tyler. Uh, I'm a member here at Bellwether Church. My wife, Caitlin, and I have been here for about a year. Uh, really excited and thankful to be here with you all this morning to, to teach. I was thankful that Nathan called and, and honored that he would ask me to, to preach this morning. Quick update um, on Nathan. He is doing well. He had surgery this past week for some issues going on with his back and leg. And uh, anyway, surgery went very well. Uh, he is recovering uh, currently in bed, but uh, he is doing okay. The pain that he was experiencing before the surgery is gone. And so we are really excited and thankful for that. Please continue to keep him in your prayers. Today, we are wrapping up a 12-week series on the book of Genesis. We are ending in chapter 11. But before we get started, uh, I want to ask you to think of a famous tower, any tower in the world. Two seconds, what comes to mind? A famous tower. Raise your hand if you thought of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the one where everybody stands far away and they do this and it looks like you're holding it up. Raise your hand if you thought of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Okay, did anybody think of Big Ben, the big t clock tower in London? No? All right. Well, for me, I thought of the most famous tower and the most impactful tower that has ever, uh, I've ever experienced, and it is the awful Tower of Terror at Disney World. I can remember as a small child, my family taking me to Disney World, and uh, if you know me to any degree, I'm not really a big risk taker. Uh, I'm not someone who likes uncertainty or things of that nature, but I felt like I had to get on this ride. And if you don't know what uh, the Tower of Terror is, you get strapped in or, or buckled in, and you go up, and you can feel you're going really high up, and then all of a sudden, it stops. And these doors open at the top of the tower, and you're looking out over all of Disney World. It really is pretty. Like, it's a beautiful thing. You're looking out over it. It's pretty great. And so, nervous seven or ten-year-old, I don't remember how old I was, we get to the top, everything is stable, it's beautiful, and all of a sudden the bottom drops. And you fall all the way close to the bottom, and you get caught, and I've never been back to Disney World since, and I don't intend to do so. Today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, another famous tower. Now, it's important because this passage really isn't about the tower itself, but it is what's known as the Tower of Babel. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Uh, we're going to read that passage in just a second, but since we're concluding our time in Genesis today, I want to do a brief recap over everything that we've covered so far. Don't worry, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but I do want us to catch up in case you've missed out. So in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we saw God's good design and creation. We saw that God created the world and everything that's in it. He made the, the birds, he made the animals, he made the sea, he made the land. And the capstone of this creation was you and me. It was humankind. He looked at it, he blessed it, and said that it was very good. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to take this blessing of the garden to all of the world. We also saw, though, in Genesis chapter 2... That mankind, Adam and Eve, chose disobedience rather than obedience to God. So they were only given one thing that they were to not do, and they chose to do that. They tried to get the good for themselves. They thought that they knew better than God. They were deceived. 
They tried to rather enjoying the blessing of the garden that God had given them. They tried to take things into their own hands. In Genesis 3, we also see that that's where sin enters the world. Sin mars every aspect of our human existence. Relationships are distorted. Work is distorted. Everything that we experience has been marked by sin. It is important to note in Genesis 3.15 that God not only gives a curse, but he gives a promise of a savior, a, a man that would come from the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. When we get to chapters 4 and 5, we see the immediate and lethal distortion of relationships between people. We see that Cain rises up and murders his brother. So quickly after Adam and Eve choose disobedience, the scriptures give us this picture that things are not headed in a good direction. In fact, they are really, really bad. Genesis 6 through 8, we see Noah's generation in the flood. At this point, just six chapters into the Bible, we see that all of the world was known for its evil. God looked on it and it said that he relented or he regretted. He was disappointed at where humankind had come to. It also shows us God's justice and his judgment. Nathan did a great job of talking about this. When we think about the flood, it is kind of funny because we decorate our kids' rooms with it. And it's really a story about God destroying the whole earth. And there are certain problems that come with that. But as Christians, our disposition is that the justice of God is right because he has the authority to do it. His justice, his judgment is right, not because our perspective agrees or disagrees with it. His justice and judgment is correct because he's the one who has the power to do it. We also see uh, in the flood story, though, that God, much like in uh, the garden, he preserves his promise. He doesn't leave uh, his promise behind. He saves Noah. They build an ark. David did a great job last week as we look at, looked at 9 and 10 with Noah's covenant. It was a story of recreation. The world had become evil. It had become distorted. It had become something that God had never intended. And so when the, the floodwaters subside, Noah comes out of the ark with his family. And David noted that there were some similarities that are really important for us to note. Adam and Eve were told to rule over the animals. They were ordered to have dominion over them. So Noah, when he gets off, his family is to have dominion over the animals. There was a restriction given. God told Adam and Eve not to eat uh, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God tells Noah and his family, don't eat lifeblood. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. We see Noah and his family in a vineyard. They're also told to, be, uh, to reproduce and to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve were supposed to do that. So in chapter 9, God gives this command to Noah that they are also to be fruitful and to multiply. But where there are similarities, we also saw that there was repeat disobedience. Noah and Adam were both in a garden. Both of them abused what God had told them to do. Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Noah ends up naked and ashamed. Does that sound familiar? Naked and ashamed in a vineyard because he got drunk. There are similarities that the author of the scripture is trying to show us that are intentional and purposeful. The same mistakes that were made by Adam are being repeated by Noah. Noah ends up naked and ashamed 
Adam and Eve ended up naked and ashamed. Similarly, chapter 9 ends with a curse and a blessing that, that Noah gives to his children in the same manner that, that Genesis 1 through 3 ends with a curse and a promise. Now, chapter 10, we get to what's known as the table of nations. This does not include the entire world. It's simply giving us a picture of what happens to Noah's people once they're, they're off the ark. So what is taking place? We see that it goes through this lineage of people that come from Noah. And there's some really important connections to chapter 9. At the end of chapter 9... Noah curses his son that, that exposed his shamefulness, his nakedness, and he curses him and says, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of, a servant of servants, he will be to his brothers. Now, the reason that this is important is because in chapter 10 it shows us that those that come from the line of Ham actually end up being like Philistines and Assyrians and the Egyptians. And so the author is being very purposeful here to show us that there are these connections. So when we step into chapter 11 today, we are not walking into um, some type of uh, isolated event. We're not walking into just a random story. We are walking into a specific passage that the author author of scripture has intended us to come upon. So I hope you found your way to Genesis chapter 11, because that's where we'll start today. While so read verse one through nine, please follow along with me. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they promise to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we're thankful for you. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness in your son, Jesus. And Father, we're so thankful for that. God, we're grateful for the gift of the scriptures that you've given us. Through your scriptures, we know what you're like. We know our need for you. We know how you've provided for us. And so as we approach the text today, I pray that we will approach this uh, story that for some it may seem like just a thousand-year-old story that is fun to read, but God, you have a word for us today through your scriptures. You have communicated something specifically to us so that we could know you more, love you more, and live in a better relationship with you and others. So through this text today, I pray you would help us to see that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So the first thing that we are going to see... 
in Genesis chapter 11 is we're going to look at man's disobedience. We're going to see man's disobedience. As I was reading that passage, uh, it may have sounded familiar to you, and we'll go over that in just a second. But before I do that, I want to go ahead and tell you where we're going. I want you to know, so if you're taking notes, here is the big takeaway for today. Here is where we're headed once we get started. And the main point is this. What has been separated and confused because of man's disobedience can and will be unified through Christ's obedience. What has been separated and confused because of man's disobedience can and will be unified through Christ's obedience. So that's where we're headed. You know where we're going. I hope that helps you along as we get there. So if our passage today sounded a little bit familiar to you, it should have. There are several key themes that we've talked about throughout the first several chapters of Genesis that are really important for us to look at. So verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, land has been a key theme throughout the book of Genesis so far. Land so far has represented God's blessing. When Adam and Eve are in the presence of God, they are in a specific land. They are in the garden. They are commanded to take that dominion, that relationship that they have, and spread it throughout the whole earth. And so God's plan was to give Adam and Eve this land, and then they were, through obedience, to spread that over all of the earth. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are in the garden. In Genesis 4, even after they're outside of the garden, the family is in a land and they're growing and having sons with jobs. They're working the land. They're in the presence of God. In Genesis chapter 9, when the, when the flood waters subside, Noah is commanded to be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. So the sign of God's blessing, his promise, his presence, the author of these chapters are trying to tell us is associated with the land. It's really important. In Genesis chapter 10, we see people do what? They disperse over the whole land. So we're, we're, we're seeing that land is this really important theme because it represents God's blessing. Now, there's another key theme that you may have caught on to. Uh, where are the people migrating from? The east. They're moving to the east. Does anybody remember where Adam and Eve had to go whenever they were kicked out of the garden? They were moving east. It actually concludes with east of Eden. In Genesis chapter 4, I'm going to flip over here real quick and read this to us. Cain has murdered Abel and God tells Cain, you're going to be a wanderer. But there's this very specific direction in verse 16 that says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in a land of Nod, east of Eden. So there's this really important theme. Land represents God's blessing. If we are in the land that God has given to us, we are in his presence. Whenever people so far have chosen disobedience to walk away from the presence of God, they are moving eastward. How does chapter 11 then start off? Verse 2, as the people migrated from the east. Uh-oh. We're seeing something that should be familiar. It should be alarming to us why are they headed we don't we don't know there yet but that should be a key to us that when we see people moving east the bible says they're looking for their own land so you have this group of people not only moving east the bible tells us they're looking for their own land 
So we see these connections with what's happened so far in the text. The question is, why are they going? Why are they leaving? Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, give us the answer to that. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So these people are choosing to walk away from God's blessing, whereas God tells them the command to go and subdue the earth, fill it, and multiply. We see that the people of the nations are moving eastward. They're trying to find a land for themselves. And they're trying to find that land for two reasons. The first is they want to make a name for themselves. They're worried about them, their greatness. They want to be known. Towers sometimes can resemble that. When a city becomes really great, I don't know why towers represent greatness all over the world, but I don't know, maybe people just run out of things to do in your city, and so you say, okay... We have tax dollars. Let's build a big tower to show people how great we are. I don't know why uh, we have a tendency to build large towers, but I do know that these people were concerned about a name for themselves. The second reason that the text gives us is they wanted to avoid being scattered throughout the earth. So as these people are migrating away from God's blessing, away from his promise, the text tells us that they are looking to make a name for themselves and they want to find their own land. They are leaving God's promise. They are moving away from the presence of God in search of greatness for themselves so that they can uh, have a land that they can build on their own. They're seeking to build their own land. They want to make a name for themselves, not for God They are wanting to avoid being scattered throughout the earth, which was a part of God's uh, initial command to Adam and Eve and also given to Noah. So the first part of our passage today really shows us the capstone of where humans have gotten to. It's a really tragic beginning to the story. It starts off in chapters 1 and 2, and it's really exciting, and there's lots of like things we get behind and we're thankful for, and then all of a sudden... It just falls off. We see Cain and Abel. We see the generation of Noah. And now all of a sudden, people are no longer interested in the land that God has given them in his presence. They want to find a place to make a name for themselves so that they can avoid being scattered over the whole earth. But... Verse 5, we're going to see that God has something to say about that because he doesn't, uh, God sees what's going on in our world. God doesn't just spin the world out into existence and say, good luck guys, figure it out, you'll be fine. He sees what's taking place. And so in verse 5, what we're going to see is God's greatness compared to human glory. In verse 5, it says this, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, how funny is that? The children of man are wanting to build this tower as tall up to the heavens. And the narrator of this text tells us that God says, Hey, let's go down. we got to go down there to see it. 
Like, let's go down there because it, the, the author is trying to show us that the efforts of humankind to build something that is so great and majestic that would glorify ourselves pales in comparison to the greatness and the glory of God. Our greatest efforts to build something. Now, you may not be building a tower. Maybe we are trying to build wealth. Maybe we're trying to build networking so that we can feel secure. Maybe we're trying to build relationships so that we can develop prominence or we can be well known. What this text is telling us is that even the best and greatest efforts of humankind to make a name for themselves, the God of the universe is greater than all of that. He's not impressed by it. He's not impressed by this big tower. I kind of got to, I got to get closer. I can't see it from here. It's, it's kind of small for me. The God of the world, his greatness supersedes our efforts for human glory and self-exaltation. In verses 6 through 9, we're going to see God's preventative punishment. Read along with me starting in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are now one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The first thing I want to see us to look at in verse 6 is this. God is the one who guides our good. We don't get to determine that. God is the one who guides our good. We are not uh, the ultimate authority of what we can or cannot do. We are not the ultimate deciders of whether or not something is right or wrong. God is. He guides our good. God knows that the evilness of man has no limits. He knows that humans are capable of great things. And guys, we, we really are. We see that in our world today. We have the ability to cure disease. We can mitigate suffering. We can improve quality of life. But just because we have the capability to do something doesn't mean that we should do it. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. We don't get to guide our good. I know very little about Iceland. I think it'd be fun to go there one day. Uh, one of the tragic things, though, that is well known about Iceland is they have basically eradicated their birth rates for children with Down syndrome. And what they've done to do this is they've utilized uh, pre-born genetic testing to determine genetic dispositions and patterns in, in unborn babies. And if there are babies that show genetic dispositions towards having Down syndrome, they will encourage and highly move their citizens to terminate that pregnancy simply because this child has a disposition towards Down syndrome. Just because we have the ability to do something as humans does not mean that we should. Just because we can do something does not mean that God gives us the thumbs up to go do it. 
And that may seem far-fetched, but there are things in our lives, too. Iceland's a really, really, you know, long way away, and we could talk about the country, but I want to ask us, what are things in our life where we're determining our own good versus God? What are the things that we're hanging on to? What are the things that we're attaining that we think because we can do them, it's got to be fine. God gets to determine our good, not us. In verses 7 through 9, we're going to see God's actual response to what humans have done, what they've done to this point in the text. So in verse 7 through 9, we see that God prevents humans from settling in one place, which is funny because what's the reason they were going to try to go east to begin with? They say in the beginning, come, let us make bricks. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what they wanted to do, they wanted to go build a city, build their comfort, build their world, build their place so that they're not dispersed over the face of the whole earth. But in verses 7 through 9, we see that God, his judgment in this passage is preventative. It's preventative. He prevents them from staying in one place. And he does this through two ways. He confuses their language. Now, that's a really interesting one. And obviously, if we think uh, multi-nationality uh, you know, versus our maybe uh, English-speaking language and those types of things. Uh, but here's one that I think is really funny right now. Uh, you maybe have seen, uh, I've got a little two-and-a-half-year-old Lucy. She runs around here all the time. Caitlin and I, I think that she is an amazing communicator. Like, we understand almost every word she says, and we think, like, wow, she's pretty okay in most areas, but in communication, she's through the roof. Then we go over to some people that we don't know that well. We go visit their house, and Lucy will rattle off three or four sentences, and I'm sitting there thinking, look at her go. She's such a good communicator. And our new friends who we just met look at her and go, "Uh uh-huh. And they give us this look because it's confusing. They're not speaking the same language. Uh, Not only is it difficult to build a town and a city, but even relationships are complicated whenever language is confused. Um, And so what God is doing here is he's confusing language so that they can't have unison with one another because he knows that their hearts are evil. So he confuses their language and then he scatters them throughout the face of the earth. This is important because the people wanted to build the city in the first place so that they wouldn't be scattered. Rather than being obedient to God's command to go into all the earth, be fruitful and multiply, they want to create a stationary place where they fulfill their own desires. And so God says, let us go down and confuse their language. He disperses them over the face of the earth. And verse 9 says... Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language. So what does this have to do with the larger context of what's happening in the book of Genesis and what's happening uh, throughout the story of God's redemptive narrative in Scripture? In chapter 11, the people start out wanting to make a name for themselves, which is ironic because the city gets named at the end of the passage Babel, which means confusion, not understanding language. We see this today because there, has anybody ever tried like the app Babel? It's a language learning app. 
It's like Duolingo, if you've ever played that, where you try really hard for a few months and then you delete the app off your phone because you're not really that committed to begin with. The word babble still has these connotations of language being confusing. In chapter 12, this is important. It just look over there. Up until this point, we've seen humans trying to make a name for themselves. Name is another really important theme throughout uh, the Pentateuch and throughout the Old Testament, as we're going to see even throughout the rest of Scripture. Up until this point, humans have been trying to make a name for themselves. Adam and Eve said, God, I think I know a little bit better than you. So I'm going to try to grab after what I think is good. Cain chooses to disobey God, murders his brother, because he believed that that would be what was best for him. The people in Noah's day were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were trying to build a name for themselves. And in chapter 11, they're trying to build a name for themselves. They want to be great. But in chapter 12, we get introduced and God changes the story. So chapter 11, you can think of it as sort of uh, the closing of the introduction of what all is happening. Because here's what God says. We're no longer going to be focused about people making a great name for them. God is going to give a promise that he is going to make a great name. So now, while we've seen people trying to make their name great, we're going to see in chapter 12 that God is going to make a great name. He says this in 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So here in verse 1, land represents what? Blessing. So now, instead of mankind trying to go get their own blessing on their own, away from it, what is God doing? He's telling Abram, Abram, you go to the land I'm showing you. So where's Abram going? To God's blessing, to his promise, to his presence. God is telling Abram to go. And in verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed Because of you. So now, instead of humans trying to make a great name for themselves, which we've seen so far, now God has taken the initiative and he says, Abram, you go to this land that I'm preparing for you. You don't run away from where I'm going. I actually want you to go away from your land to this place that I'm going to show you. And more than that, I'm going to make a great name out of you. So what starts in chapter 11 with people wanting to make a great name for themselves will lead to one man through whom the whole nations of the earth will be blessed. And as Christians, we know that this promise to Abraham about his name being great isn't about Abraham. It's about Jesus. We see in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to Pharisees at one point, they're arguing and the Pharisees say, uh, we are of Abraham. That's sort of their, their argument. We're right because we are of Abraham. And Jesus' response to, to, to the Pharisees are, no, you aren't of your father Abraham because if you were, you would have faith like he had in me. And so what we see, this promise to Abraham in chapter 12, we see that Jesus is the one through whom the ultimate promise comes. And so in the Old Testament, when we see land as a blessing, that's pointing us to Christ. 
when we see God moving people towards his blessing, towards his promised land, ultimately that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Which is why going to, to Israel is a lot of fun and it's really great to see. But the point of being a Christian isn't to go to some land several thousand miles away. It's faith in Christ because he is the fulfillment of this original promise. It is in Christ that we receive these blessings. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 real quick, uh, if you can. Uh, It will not be on the screen. I didn't have that. I'm sorry. But in Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses um, 5 through 11 for us. For those of us that are Christians in here, it's it's exciting. I love this passage. Uh, But let's think about name as a big theme. God promised Abram, I'm going to make a great name of you. And Paul's going to tell us a little bit more about what that name would become and why it's important. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes this. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what Paul is saying here for us is we are not just to emulate Christ because he was a good example, but because God has given him that promise to Abram that was so many years ago has been bestowed and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He has the name that is above every name. He is the name that we will all bow to and confess that Jesus is Lord. One more passage. Flip with me to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. John writes this as he's seeing a vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Maybe your life today feels a little bit like the people of Babel. Maybe you feel like your life has been scattered. It's confusing. It's uncertain. Suffering, pain, worry, broken relationships can feel overwhelming. But the gospel that shows up 
in Genesis 11, we see the fulfillment where God had to scatter people because of their disobedience. One day, we're not going to be scattered. One day, every tribe, tongue, nation, people will be gathered around the throne, unified, and in unison confessing that Jesus is Lord. And so the confusion and the scatteredness that you feel today, that you may have even felt this morning, I know our house this morning, it felt scattered trying to get out and get here. There was frustration, there was confusion, there was a little bit of turmoil, miscommunication, all the things. We look forward to a day when Christ returns and that's done with. It's wiped away. So maybe you're not a Christian in this room. Maybe you have been trying to figure out how can I get my life together? Everything feels scattered and confused. Everything feels frustrating. If you're not a Christian in this room, I want to suggest to you that the way that you can find blessing and presence in God's uh, and promise in God's presence is to welcome Jesus as Savior of your life. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. And believing in Jesus doesn't mean that the confusion and the suffering and the pain and the dissonance all goes away. But what it does mean is that in the middle of the chaos, we have joy because we know that Jesus is Lord. We look forward to a day when all the things that we experience are made new, made right. And so if you're not a Christian in this room today... And you are maybe thinking about, man, I've I've come to the end of it. There are people here who would love to talk to you about being a Christian. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you are a Christian in this room. And maybe you've been trying to make a name for yourself. Maybe you've been trying to walk away from God's promise. You've said like our father Adam and our mother Eve, you know what? God told us not to do these things, but I think I know better. Maybe you're like the people who went to build the Tower of Babel in the city. Maybe you've said, you know what, God? I know that you tell me you're good, and I know that you tell me that what you have for me is best, but I'm going to choose to walk over here, and I'm going to try to build my own empire. I'm going to try to accumulate as much wealth as I can, as much status as I can, because I'm worried if I don't do this on my own, my life is going to be scattered. If you're a Christian in this room today, I pray that we would recognize the vanity of those attempts and that we would refocus our lives and minds on the glory of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. So as Christians, we look forward to The main point that we talked about at the beginning, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, is not the end of the story. What is scattered and confused because of our disobedience can and will be made right and unified through the obedience of Christ.